Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, I am very thrilled tonight because we have a wonderful woman joining us all the way from Boston. Chi-Chi Wu is a staff attorney with the National Consumer Law Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And I've had the privilege of emailing back and forth with Chi-Chi. She is a incredible resource for great information about consumer law. And I want to tell you some information about her, and she's going to share with us some incredible information that she has learned in the study that she's done in her new report called Automated Injustice, How a Mechanized Dispute System Frustrates Consumers Seeking to Fix Errors in Their Credit Reports. That came out in January of 2009. I read it, and I said, Oh my gosh, I have to get her on the show. And she was so wonderful to say she'd join us. But let me tell you a little bit about her background. Chi Chi Wu focuses on consumer credit issues at NCLC, which is the National Consumer Law Center in Boston. And this includes fair credit reporting, credit cards, refund application loans, and medical debt. Chi Chi is co-author of the legal manuals, which I purchase and have in my possession, and they're called Fair Credit Reporting Act and credit discrimination, and a contributing author to cost of credit, truth in lending, and collection actions. Again, she also is the author of this new report that we're going to talk about today. Before joining NCLC, Chi Chi worked in the Consumer Protection Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office and the Asian Outreach Unit of Greater Boston Legal Services. You can find out more about the National Consumer Law Center in Boston at nclc.org and all the great things that they do for consumers. And we can talk more. And you can also find out more about her at our website at kuci.org slash privacy piracy. So thank you so much, Chi Chi, for joining us tonight. Well, thank you, Mari. And thank you for the kind words. It's an honor to be on your show. I'm delighted to be here and to talk to you and your audience. Well, I know you have so much to share and so many important things because all of us, no matter whether we have students listening or we have a lot of business people listening or privacy advocates or privacy uh, officers and companies, they all are consumers. And this is important for everybody to listen to. So tell us a little bit more about the National Consumer Law Center. Okay, well, my, uh, the National Consumer Law Center has been around for, gosh, uh, about 40 years now. We uh, are a nonprofit. We focus on consumer law with a particular emphasis on low-income consumers. We, we try to help low-income consumers. We, uh, 
are um, a policy and advocacy organization. We do some technical assistance in education and outreach. Um, we were actually founded as what was called a legal services backup center. So um, some of your listeners might know about the network of legal services offices across the country that provide free assistance to uh, low-income Americans. And for many years, what we did was we helped those offices on consumer law issues. Now, we don't play that role anymore because, uh, unfortunately, um, Congress defunded the backup centers in the 90s, but it kind of gives you an idea of where we're coming from and the work we do. Um, you know, we support other attorneys. We testify in Congress and in front of state legislatures. The one important thing for your listeners to understand about who we are is, unfortunately, one of the things we don't do is help consumers directly with either advice or um, legal representation. We wish we could do that. Unfortunately, we don't have the resources, and there's some ethical considerations about advising consumers individually. Um, we do help advocates and attorneys for consumers, though. Right. And I think the the work that you've done and the reports that you have are relevant to every consumer, whether they're a low-income consumer or a high-income consumer, because we all seem to get ripped off with regard to credit reporting and the various deceptive practices of creditors. So this is relevant to every single one of us. And your reports are up on your website too, right? Yes, uh, our reports are on our website. We do have a lot of information on our website for both uh, consumers and their advocates and attorneys. Um, we have a section with consumer brochures, um, and we have lots of reports and studies and testimony and comments. Um, they're all up on that website you gave the address of, nclc.org. Great. Now, let's talk about this report because I, th- I thought it was very enlightening. And this was a record about a, the report about credit reporting industry, and the name of it is Automated Injustice, How a Mechanized Dispute System Frustrates Consumers Seeking to Fix Errors in Their Credit Reports. Why don't you tell us about that? A little bit sure, about the report. Mario. Yeah. I, I'd love to tell you about the report. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I co-author a legal manual on Fair Credit Reporting Act issues. And as a result, um, I talk to and work with a lot of attorneys across the country that work on credit reporting issues. And I was shocked to find that level of dysfunction in the credit reporting system. Um, First, you know, just the amount of inaccuracies that are out there. But more importantly, that the safeguards established by Congress to help consumers when there is an inaccuracy, how those had become, you know, basically a travesty of justice. The, the dispute system that was put in place to help consumers has become, as the title of our report says, mechanized, automated, you know, to the point where it's just pro forma and it's, it's a bit ridiculous, farcical. And it's such a joke that we have to write such long letters, especially with regard to identity theft. You know, our people have to write, uh, if you're a victim of identity theft, you have extensive letters that you have to write to the credit reporting agencies. And if you have a mixed file or some other problem, you have to write extensive letters. And then that letter just gets reduced to a, a two-digit code or something, right? Right. I mean, well, this this is, you know, this is what the heart of the, the report is about, um, the, how this system has been reduced from, you know, what people would think is a real investigation. Uh, And if I may, uh, I'd like to talk about, um, you know, maybe what a real investigation should be or what people think about a real investigation should be, and then compare it to what actually happens uh, with the credit bureaus. Okay, let's do there. we got so much to talk about, but let's start there. (laughs) Can we just dive in there? Okay, well... You know, I think most people have an idea of of what an investigation should entail. Um, you know, maybe from popular culture, um, you know, TV and books. But uh, and in a credit reporting uh, context, you would think that if you have a dispute about something in your credit report and you take the time to put it down on paper, put to add supporting documentation as you... Uh, 
mentioned, Mari, an identity theft victim, you know, compiles like, you know, a pretty thick stack of papers and then sends it off to a, a credit bureau. You would think the credit bureau would take that information from the consumer, look at it carefully, and then, you know, start gathering information, calling the consumer maybe, looking at things like um, in an identity theft, maybe the credit application, looking at the the signature, the handwriting, sales receipts uh, that a fraudster might have signed, gathering the police reports, um, maybe talking to uh, uh, merchants that um, that the fraudster went to. Um, you would think that there would be a level of active inquiry and communication. Well, unfortunately, none of that happens. What happens is the letter of dispute that the consumer painstakingly puts together and sends the credit bureau is taken by the credit bureau employee and converted to a two-digit code. Right. And that two-digit code is sent off to the creditor or other entity that originally provided the information. Right. So let's say you, you're an identity theft victim and you send all this stuff to the credit reporting agencies and they take it in. They don't look at it. All they do is they turn it into a two-digit code and then they send it back to the creditor if it was Citibank or whomever issued the fraudulent account. And that's what they do at that point, right? That's what they do. Exactly. Um, and that's all they do at that point. Uh, and what's really shocking is do you know how many codes there are? There are only 26 codes, and the credit bureaus use the same four or five codes for about 85% of their disputes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all that happens is that that dispute letter that the consumer took all that time to put together gets put into a bucket, one of five buckets, not his or hers, disputes present previous account status slash history, claims inaccurate information, disputes amount, or claims account closed by consumer. Those are the five categories. So all that detail, all that information that the consumer puts together is is lost, and it's not sent to the original creditor um, or other, uh, we call them, in our our lingo, furnisher of information. Right, because it could be a landlord... It could be a student loan. It could be whoever has access to your credit, um, your credit information, and uses it for some permissible purpose under the under the law, right? Right. A, a furnisher could be um, a, a bunch of different entities. Um, you know, creditors are pretty frequent banks. You know, other right. lenders, but yeah, it could be uh, another provider of information, um, like. Uh, a landlord, uh, debt collectors are furnishers of information. Right. Um, utilities sometimes. Mm-hmm. So an employer, even even an employer, um, they yeah, furnish. There are certain yeah. Types, yeah, there are certain types of specialized. Um, in that case, you wouldn't call them a credit, but you call them. Uh, uh, a, it's called a consumer reporting agency. Uh, under the technical language of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Yeah, yeah. Um, and employers do provide information to certain specialized types of employment consumer reporting agencies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then they're supposed to ask the furnisher to investigate, right, using that two-digit code, right? Right. Uh, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and I guess I, I should explain a little bit earlier for some of those um, some of your listeners who might not be as familiar with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Right. Let's do that. Um, okay. So the Fair Credit Reporting Act is uh, the federal law that was enacted in 1970 that uh, protects consumers when they're dealing with credit bureaus. And it has a, a, whole, a whole bunch of protections. It um, limits who can see your credit report. Um, it sets time limits on how long negative information can stay on your credit report. Um, it has, as you've probably talked about on your show, a number of protections uh, against identity theft. Um, and one of the most critical protections for under the Fair Credit Reporting Act is if uh, the consumer discovers that there's an error or a, error, a mistake on their credit report, because credit reports aren't perfect. You're dealing with um, 
millions of consumers and billions of pieces of information. So there are mistakes. And when the Fair Credit Reporting Act was enacted, there was a recognition that mistakes happen. And the way to deal with mistakes is not to require 100% perfection, but to give the consumer a mechanism to go to the credit bureau and say, there's a mistake here, look into it, investigate it, and fix it if it's inaccurate. Right. And so the consumer has the right to send a dispute to the credit bureau, and the credit bureau has to investigate, um, usually within 30 days. And as part of that process, the credit bureau has to involve the furnisher of information we talked about earlier, the creditor or collection agency or utility. The one who actually sent that erroneous information. That's right, because the idea was the entity that sent the erroneous information is in a, in a good position to investigate, figure out what went wrong. Right. So the furnisher has to be involved. The furnisher has to conduct its own investigation and then review all of the what's called, quote-unquote, all relevant information about the dispute, and then report back to the credit bureau. Right. And then after um, the investigation is complete, the credit bureau has to give the consumer written results of the investigation and a free copy of the credit report if the dispute results in a change. Right. And, And if the creditor cannot verify that what they sent was correct, then the credit reporting agency must delete it, correct? At least for, for uh, identity theft. If, if, they, if the creditor can't prove that it wasn't fraud, all right, that it, yeah, that it wasn't fraud, then the credit reporting agency is supposed to delete or what we call block that information. Mari, you're absolutely right under the law. Right. <laughs> Under the law, if the furnisher can't verify the information, it's supposed to be deleted. Right. Unfortunately, let me tell you what happens some of the time with right. the furnishers. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens in reality and the, and the scary part for consumers in general and identity theft victims in particular. Um, what the furnisher does sometimes, and not always, uh, you know, there's thousands of furnishers out there, and they, they don't all do this, but some of them, some of them, um, all they do when they get the dispute, um, and remember, all they get as part of the dispute is this two-digit code, and maybe, maybe about thirty percent of the time, a line of information, right? Um, like, you know, consumer claims creditor will change, and what the furnisher will often do then is they will turn around. And they will simply check their own computer records. And if the computer record matches the form that they get, mm-hmm. um, because this is all done by form, by the way. It's all done by a standardized form called the Consumer Dispute Verification Form, or CDV. Right. And that's often automated, so it's called an ACDV. Right. And if the information in this form, this ACDV, matches the information in their computer records, then they all turn around and say verified. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the problem with that? You can, as you can imagine, the problem is this is the same computer database that generated the error in the first place. Right, right. So they already have that error, and they're going to say yes. The error you're sending me is the same error that we have here. Yes, it's verified. That's, that's right. That's right. Um, there's, this, there's this case. It was a really important case out of Virginia involving a credit card company and a, a woman, uh, Linda. And, uh, you know, she was a, what's called an authorized user on a credit card, which means she was allowed to use her husband's credit card, mm-hmm. but she didn't sign up to be responsible for it. She wasn't what's called a joint account holder. Right. And the credit card company had her wrongly listed as a joint account holder that she was responsible for the debt. And then, you know, she and her husband got divorced, and her husband filed for bankruptcy. And so this credit card company went after Linda, and she had no contract with them herself. She had no contract. She didn't sign anything. 
Um, and she sent dispute after dispute. And all that this credit company, card company did when she would send a dispute is they'd look at its own computer records, the same computer records that had her listed as a joint account holder erroneously. Right. And it kept saying, verified, verified. We're correct. Of course, if you only look, if the credit card company only looked at its own records, it would say verified. They didn't look at really important things like the account application to see whether she has assigned the account application. Right. And I'm sure they have that in their computer files. Well, here's the even scary thing. No, they didn't. They destroyed her, the account application, after two years. Oh, that's amazing, because most of them keep it at least five to seven years. Well, this particular credit card company had a policy of destroying the account application. They didn't even bother to, you know, nowadays it's easy. You, you scan a document and you put it in the computer. Exactly. Um, but they didn't do that. Um, and instead, they instead of keeping the account application so to know who's actually signed up for an account, who's signed on the data line, and who's merely an authorized user, um, they just said, well, our computer records show <laughs> she's, she's a joint account holder, therefore we, we must be right. And fortunately, in, in this case, you know, Linda had to actually sue and take her case all the way up to the Federal Court of Appeals to get justice. And fortunately, this, the Fourth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals saw the light, saw reason, and, and said, you know, it, the word investigation in the Fair Credit Reporting Act means you have to conduct a reasonable investigation. You have to, you have to actually engage in a detailed inquiry or systematic examination. So that's the law. The law is supposed to be that furnishers are supposed to engage in a detailed inquiry or systematic uh, invest examination. Unfortunately, a lot of furnishers still aren't doing it. Um, our report is full of several examples where, you know, the creditor or the furnisher, you know, didn't investigate to check um, its underlying records, the documents, um, or even didn't check a different database. You know, there's a couple of examples where consumers paid off an account and had evidence they paid off an account, um, but it didn't show up as paid. Right. And so their credit reports were showing that they were delinquent and hadn't paid when they had. And so, uh, unfortunately, um, the problem isn't limited to just the credit bureaus turning these disputes into two-digit codes and taking those carefully written letters and not sending them to the furnishers, but then the furnishers go and conduct a very perfunctory inquiry. Right. You know, I have all the victims that come to me that we help them. Not only do we have them write to the credit reporting agencies and tell them that this is fraudulent or this, or this is an error and you must, you know, uh, share this with the creditor. But we also have them write directly to the creditor or the furnisher and tell them as well, hey, we've written to the credit reporting agency. Now we're writing to you. You do an investigation too. And even with that, I have to tell you, Chi Chi, that my clients, many of them, before I get involved, they don't even get an answer. They don't even get an answer from the creditor. They only hear from the credit reporting agency that it's been verified. So you're right. I mean, this is, like you said, it's not just the credit reporting agencies. It's the creditor. They don't bother. What I've learned because of the economy and the downsizing, the fraud departments in these, uh, you know, from the creditors are being downsized and people are being laid off and they just don't have enough time and they don't spend the time. It's just a matter of resources. Mari, you have hit the nail on the head. Um, first of all, just a, your earlier point about sending a copy of the dispute to the furnisher or the creditor, that's absolutely critical. Um, I mean, I, one thing I don't want to do is turn your listeners off to not disputing at all, because if they do find a, an error in their credit report, they should dispute. Um, I know I'm telling you that the system is broken, but if they don't dispute, then nothing happens at all. So they should dispute, and they should send a copy to the furnisher because the furnisher is never going to get a copy of that dispute from the credit bureau, even though, even though they should. And even though we think the law requires the credit bureau to send the whole packet of information to the furnisher, the 
credit bureau doesn't, and so it's up to the consumer to send a copy of the dispute to the creditor. So and then that even... is absolutely correct advice. Um, and and I hope your listeners, you know, first of all, pull their credit reports and make sure that there's no errors. But if they find one, follow that advice. And we need to remind them that they can get it for free at annualcreditreport.com. They can get one free credit report from each of the three credit bureaus, Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. And they can even they can get them all at once, or they can take get one and then wait three months and get the second one, and then another three months and get the second one, so that they're watching them for free. But you know what I noticed, and this is something that has really driven me crazy when I've helped clients who have written to the creditor and to the credit reporting agencies. You know how you talked about the two-digit code for the um, credit reporting agencies? Well, when you write to the creditors, they don't scan in the letters either. <laughs> they, You know, the letters that explain everything, like this wasn't me, here's all the documentation, here's my police report, they don't scan that in so that you talk to somebody in the fraud department and you tell them this and, and they say, well, I don't see the letters in the file. I can't tell you how many times I have begged to get a fax number or an email so that I can actually send that in. So it's really important if you have a dispute letter that you scan in everything, including your return receipt, which you have to send return receipt requested because they're going to lie and tell you they never got it. And then, of course, then you have some opportunity if they refuse to do an investigation and they say they don't have it and you have the proof that they did have it, then you may have a cause of action that would be compensable under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, right? Right, Chi Chi? Right. That's absolutely right. Um, that's the next step and the next thing to, to talk about. What happens if you send a dispute to both the credit bureau and the creditor, the furnisher, and you and you just run up against this, this brick wall of automation and that doesn't conduct a real investigation? Um, and then the next step is to start looking for le- legal assistance and also to complain. I mean, complain to your state AG, complain to the Federal Trade Commission, um, all, all the places that you can think of to complain. But also there is a right under the Fair Credit Reporting Act um, to sue the credit bureau and the furnisher uh, for not conducting a reasonable explanation. Um, but here's a very important point only if the dispute has been sent to the credit bureau. Right. Um, if you send this dispute directly to the furnisher, to the creditor, or the credit card company or the mortgage um, company or the auto lender, um, you're not going to have a right under the, federal, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act to go after the creditor. Only when you send it to the credit bureau and then the credit bureau forwards it, uh, the, the ACDV form to the furnisher, is there a cause of action? Right. Uh, And you may ask why, and (laughs) that has to do with some politics when the Fair Credit Reporting Act was amended in the mid-90s, but furnishers basically are only liable if they fail to investigate in response to a dispute forwarded from the credit bureau. And this is really important because in a few months, you'll probably you will have the right to, dis- to send a dispute to the furnisher under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. The, the, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, as a result of the um, 2003 FACT Act amendments, provides for a right to directly dispute with the furnisher. And so your listeners, your listeners are going to start hearing about this right to dispute with creditors and other furnishers. Um, but it's really important to under- for them to understand, if you do that, if you only dispute with the furnisher and the furnisher doesn't comply with the law, you can't go to court to uh, to remedy that failure. You have no right of action. You only have it when you send it to the credit bureau. Right. So you have to do both. You, you, you know, have you to have to both. first do the, the the one to the credit bureau, and then immediately follow up with the one with the with the furniture as well. That's right. An excellent point, Mari. Send it certified mail return receipt right. because you want a paper trail all of it don't dis- don't dispute over the phone definitely don't do that don't right. dis- dispute on the internet because if you go to the internet what the what you'll get is this checkbox form right um, 
and you have to, you know, click where your dispute fits in. And the problem is then you, you've even skipped the step of the credit bureau employee, you know, reading your letter and figuring out what code to put it in. You've just given them the code directly and they don't even need any human in- intervention. Right. And by human intervention, I mean, it's, it's, it's very minuscule even when you send it in writing. I mean, you know, one, one of the, the things about this whole process is that, you know, these, these uh, credit bureau employees that process these disputes, they're not investigators. I mean, you were talking earlier about the fraud departments at the furnishers. Right. Uh, at the creditors. And at least the creditors have fraud departments. What the bureaus have is, first of all, they've outsourced the, the, these um, these functions to vendors in other countries, which is, in itself is kind of scary. Right. Um, and then these 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 uh, the vendor employees, um, all they do is they read it and they assign a code. Right. They read the dispute and they assign a code, and maybe they add a line of text. They don't they don't have you know they don't call anyone. They don't email anyone. Um, their whole role is pick that code and send the ACDV form off. And it seems so overwhelming for, for victims of identity theft and even people who just have a merge file or a mixed file or just an error. Or maybe maybe they have something bad on their credit report that's been on their 10 years and it only should have been on their 7 years. And they want to dispute that, but it's so it seems so overwhelming to do it. So some of them might even think, well, I'll just do it online. But that is a huge mistake from exactly what Chi-Chi said. Additionally, isn't it true that when you do some of that online, if you look at those privacy notices that you give up your right to sue under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you actually submit to arbitration? Um, we, we have heard of, uh, yes, we have heard of arbitration provisions being added um, when you go to the Credit Bureau's website and... Um, you know, either get certain types of credit reports or, you know, use their websites in other ways. And and that's another huge issue, which we could spend another hour on, the problem with arbitration clauses. Right. But all these rights that you're talking about under the Fair Credit Reporting Act that would entitle you to damages if they do not follow the law, those are basically going to be taken away if you have to Arbitrate. I mean, you 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 could refer to that, but you don't get the the right to go to a an actual trial and have an actual trial. So that's that's another right that you're kind of giving up if you do this online and you don't do it by return receipt requested. So we know that it's a hassle to do this, but you've got to. <laughs> There's just no choice. You really have to do the paper trail and you have to do it return receipt requested and you have to keep copies in your file and you have to keep a copy of the return receipt that you get and scan it in. And it's, it is really, I know it seems overwhelming, but you will be glad that you do because it'll empower you to protect yourself from these bad credit reports. So let's, let's talk about what, you know, we have a lot of students here on the campus, and they probably get a lot of credit like a lot of other students. How likely is it that a credit report is going to have an error? Um, well, there's different estimates out there about how, uh, how many errors in credit reports. Um, the industry claims, the, the credit bureaus themselves claim, it's only about 3%. Um, consumer groups have done studies um, where they found errors as high as um, 25% of credit reports, um, errors that are serious enough to cause a denial of credit or to um, mean that the consumer has to pay more money for credit. Um, there was or maybe they won't get a job because, you know, now if you go for a job interview and you sign the box, you put a check mark in the box, they can get your credit report. And oh, yeah, yeah. So- I mean, credit reports... Um, are so important in a consumer's life. It, it's it's hard to underestimate this. And you know the old joke about uh, you know this will go on your permanent record. Well, your credit report is your record of your economic life, and it it a, a good credit report um, means not just the difference between getting a mortgage and or not, or getting a car loan or not, but yeah, it'll affect your job. It'll affect 
whether you can get insurance in some states or how much you pay for insurance. Right. Um, so it affects it, whether you can really get an apartment, important. you know, if you yeah. have a, you may not even be able to get an apartment. So, you know, I think a lot of young people who immediately start getting credit because it's sent to them with pre-approved offers, they go off to college and all of a sudden everybody's offering them credit and it sounds like fun. And then they get in over their head and then they don't know how bad their credit is until they see their credit report and they may not see it. So, you know, if you're a student on this campus here at the university, you need to get your credit report and see what's out there. If you're even late once, it can really ding you. And and that may mean the difference between getting a job when you graduate or getting an apartment or like, you know, like Chichi said, so many different things like insurance. So yep, that's that's right. And so I'm sorry, I didn't finish the question about the the level of errors. Right, um, right. Um, but the one po- last point I wanted to make is, you know, so the the, the estimates of the number of errors range from three percent to as high as twenty five percent. But the thing, the important thing to think about is, even if you're talking about three percent, almost every adult American has a credit report. That means, you know, northwards of 6 million people have a problem in their credit reports, an error or an inaccuracy. So it affects a lot of people. Even the lowest estimate, this number of errors affect a lot of people. Exactly. And sometimes you may think, oh, there's another name. You know, it, it isn't anything to do with an account. And you may look at your credit report and say, gee, that's weird. Um, my name is Susan, but it says Shannon. That could be a problem because, you know, that may mix you with some other files. So even if it's um, an error that may not affect your credit right now, it could be a problem in the future that you're linked with someone else and suddenly your file gets mixed with someone else. Do you want to explain a mixed file for my my audience? Uh, well, I, I think my, you've actually done a really good job, which is, is exactly what you said, a mixed file is when uh, information about another consumer ends up in your credit report. Um, and it's, one of, it's actually one of the toughest and most damaging t- types of errors in credit reports. People who have mixed file problems, it'll follow them for years. Um, there was a woman in Florida um, who, um, her na- uh, she was mixed up, uh, let's call, call her... Uh, Ms. X. Okay. And, and she was mixed up with a, another woman um, who had a very similar name and, uh, more importantly, had a Social Security number close to hers. I mean, you know, the thing is, you think about the number of consumers out there who might have a similar name. Right. And, it's, you know, it's not uncommon. There are a lot of John Smiths and you know, Jane Doe's in the U.S. And so what uh, is the one identifier that's supposed to be unique um, to a consumer? Well, anyone who listens to your show must know the importance of the Social Security number. Right. That's the golden key number for credit and, and on the credit report. And so you would think the credit bureaus would keep their files by the, of the consumer's Social Security number, and they do. But the problem is they don't use all nine digits. They don't make sure all nine digits match. If seven out of the nine digits match in a social security number and the consumer's name is similar enough, or even if the first name is the same when it comes to women. And the last name different, yeah. Yeah, it was the last name different because the the bureaus assume, you know, with women they may change the last name when they get married. So they'll merge or mix two people's files. Right. If they have similar names and their social security numbers are off by a little bit. And so this is what happened to... Miss X. Uh, okay, let's say, call her Amy. I'm sorry, okay. Miss X. Okay. Probably to Amy. Um, Amy with a Y. Amy with a Y lived in Orlando, Florida. Um, and she pulled her credit report and found 25 accounts with bad information. Mm. Um, the only problem was that wasn't Amy. Those weren't Amy's accounts. They were the accounts of Anne. Anne had the same last name and a social security number, seven, nine, nine, nine digits the same. Well, Amy spent 
13 years oh. trying to get her credit report fixed. 13 years. She would dispute. And, you know, once in a while, the credit bureau would do the right thing and, and, and delete some false accounts. But the new ones would show up. The problem kept going on. Right. And on and on. Um, her and, and, and Amy couldn't see Anne's report, and Anne couldn't see Amy's report. So they didn't really have a clear idea of what was going on. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, when she would pull her own report, you know, she might have a clean version. But, you know, creditors, they use right. um, they, they use different matching criteria. So, so, you know, it took a while for Amy to figure out what's going on. And then, you know, 13 years she tries to... to um, to fix her credit report, her credit score drops into the low 500. Oh my goodness, that's bad news. At one point, she's told she tries to apply for credit in the store, and she's told she has to leave the store. Oh no! And the only thing that fixed Amy's credit report was that she had to sue under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Mm. You know, she was forced to sue after years of this problem really taking a huge toll on her. Um, and that was the only way she got justice was to, to, to file a lawsuit. And it's hard because it's sometimes, you know, this is very costly to even litigate these kinds of cases. So you have to be able to even get someone who not only is very familiar with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is complex, but that they have to be willing to take your case. That's another issue, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, as I said at the beginning of the program, I work with some of the attorneys who who handle these cases, and they're good. They're good attorneys. They know this law, and you know, if if you um, have them as one of your attorneys in a case, you know, you, you can be assured you're in good hands. The problem is, there are not that many of them, right? You have to find one of them, and um, unfortunately, they're just you know we we wish there were enough attorneys to help all the victims of of inaccurate credit reports and of this travesty of justice. Um, now, some of these attorneys will take cases on what's called contingency, right. which means you know they get paid when they win the case because they can get attorneys' fees um, from the credit bureau. Um, that's why it's so important that you write good letters and you have a very good paper trail that you can give to them because then they can see the value of your case. That's right. Uh, an attorney is more likely to take your case if you've documented everything carefully, filed multiple disputes, put everything in writing, supporting documentation, good paper trail. Um, so, um, especially that's if it's gone on for thirty. So yeah, especially if it's gone on for years and years, like poor Amy with the thirteen years. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, now, you- Amy, she had a really good lawyer because uh, Amy's lawyer was able to get um, not only you know two hundred thousand dollars in actual damages. That means damages she actually suffered from all this, um, all the problems and the violations of law by the credit bureaus. But they, she got an a punitive damage award of two million dollars. Now, I'm not saying that you know every everybody's going to get reporting problem right. is going to get that kind of judgment. I mean, that's right. the, certainly the exception. Um, but you know, it shows the importance. You 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 definitely want if you're going if if you have a case like this, you definitely want a lawyer who knows this law and knows how to handle one of these cases because it, this law is full of you know traps for novices. Um, I don't know how many cases I see where uh, a lawyer tries to sue the furnisher of information when they haven't sent the dispute to the credit bureau, like I said earlier. And right. you just don't have a cause of action there. Right. We're speaking with Chi Chi Wu, who is the staff attorney for the National Consumer Law Center. She's written many of their manuals, and she we're talking right now about an, a very recent report that she wrote about the credit reporting agencies and what the challenges are. And um, she's giving us a lot of help on that. Let's let's kind of go back to to this report and explain to us um, what are some of the most frequent types of credit reporting errors. We talked about a mixed file, talked about identity theft. What other kinds of errors are there? Well, a couple of the other types of errors we've seen uh, errors from furnishers in general. For example, furnishers who 
get, receive a payment but then somehow fail to apply it. And so the consumer's credit report shows that the debt is unpaid when it has been paid. Right. And then... Oh, I love it when they say you're late when you know you're not late. <laughs> and and, and they, they make a lot of money if you're late. So this is a little trick that I think most people are starting to realize that if you do online banking and you pay your bill to your credit card company um, or your lender, whatever it is, and you pay online that you initiate from your own bank and you do it and you pay it, uh, you set it to pay five days before it's due, then if they try and tell you it's late, your bank will back you up because you will have it exactly when you ask that it be paid. And most of those bills are paid electronically. So that is a good way for you to know. One time, I have to tell you this, Chichi, one time I had, um, I won't tell which credit card company, they said it was late and they wanted to charge me a late fee. And I saw it on there and I was doing online banking and I called up my bank and I said, you were set to pay this on such and such a day. They said, well, we did. And I said, well, the credit card company is charging me a late fee. So we did a conference call and listen to this. The creditor said, well, we, yeah, we got it, but we didn't process it for five days. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. You received it from my bank on such and such a date, which we have verification, and you didn't process? Whose fault is that? I said, you can't charge me for that. And of course, they took it off immediately. So it's really important that you show, because if you send something by mail five days ahead of time, they could have it sitting there and you have no recourse. They could say, no, you didn't send it on time and it's your word against theirs. And especially now that the economy has been such as it is, they're going to charge you higher late fees. And so they're going to want to be calling in those fees. So make sure you pay online and make sure you pay at least five days ahead of time through your bank and you've got verification. That's just a little thing that works for sure. That That's excellent advice. That's excellent advice, Mari. And just to, to add to that, it's also so important to pay on time now because um, certain kinds of creditors, you know, credit card companies will not only stock you with a $35 late fee, they'll raise your interest rate. Exactly. Exactly. So... It's much worse than just a, a late fee. Right. Um, right. So, you know, we were talking before about the 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 systems, and, and is that what you were talking about with the EOSCAR system, right? Could you explain that a little bit so people understand? Uh, yeah. I mean, as I mentioned before, uh, the way that the credit bureaus send the consumer's dispute to the furnishers or the creditors is through a standardized form called the Consumer Dispute Verification Form, or CDV. And nowadays, they don't send even send that form in paper. They send it electronically. It's called an ACDV, an Automated Consumer Dispute Verification Form. And it's sent through this system called EOSCAR. Um, e and, for electronic, right? Right, of course. E for electronic. <laughs> it's E, online solutions for complete and accurate reporting. Right. <laughs> and um, nowadays, um, I think the bureaus don't even, you know, they, they require their furnishers to use this electronic system. They don't even, you know, accept um, paper communication back and forth. And um, those dispute codes I mentioned, those 26 dispute codes are also part of EOSCAR. So, you know, everything is automated, everything is computerized, and, and that's the problem. There's no human discretion. There's no human discretion to look at paper documents and say, oh, yeah, this is a payoff letter. This says a letter from the creditor saying, you paid this off. You know, that, that simple anal human analysis, non-electronic analysis, just isn't there. It's all codes. You know, it's, that's coded into, you know, um, claim, claims inaccurate information right. or disputes amount. You know, that's a lot less information than a payoff letter exactly. from the creditor saying you've paid this debt. Well, when you get something back from the credit reporting agencies now, they will give you a telephone number to call because when you originally try and call, you can't even get to a human. You can't even get to a human. But once you've made a dispute, then you get a letter back that, is also automated, but it does have a telephone number to call. 
And at that point, we tell people, you know, call the number, get a fax number, and fax the stuff over if they can't find it. And try and get a real human to speak to because that's where you're going to get the corrections is when you finally get to a human, right? Yes, yes. The getting to a human who can who has discretion. That's the key, the key part. Is right. is it is the key. Um, you know, there are humans who take the dispute letter and convert it into this two digit code. But you know, these are the um, employees of these vendors. Um, who are based in other countries, and their entire job is to just convert the, to these letters into these codes, and they don't have discretion. Now, there are credit bureau employees based in the United States that do have discretion. There are fraud That's departments. That's you want to try. Yeah, and you asked that exactly. So you don't give up until you get somebody in the fraud department because there are fraud departments in each of the credit bureaus. So that's, you're absolutely right. You have to get to the next level, which is pretty much in every one of our consumer disputes. Get to somebody who's got an authority to make a decision. And and hopefully then you can get something done. But if you can't, that's when you need to get a really well-seasoned attorney who does Fair Credit Reporting Act. You know, I wanted to ask you about this one. This one is, I hear a lot of complaints about this, and you wrote about this in, in your report. What about the re-aging of obsolete, obsolete debts? That's a huge issue. Why don't you tell people? Because people will get a collection call from some company that says that there was a debt 15 years ago. What about that? I'm so glad you raised that, Mari, because um, I, I had meant to raise that when talking about errors. Um, Re, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, information, negative information, is only supposed to stay on your credit report generally for seven years. Um, there's ten, 10 years for bankruptcy, and then a criminal conviction can stay on forever. But most bad stuff has to come off after seven years. And that seven years is, is pretty firm, and you, you, that can't be changed just because you make a payment toward the debt, for example, or you acknowledge that the debt um, is valid. Well, how do you count that seven years? Obviously, there's some sort of uh, field or code in the in, in the credit bureau system that indicates when the clock is supposed to run. Well, re-aging is when a debt collector resets the clock by substituting a later date uh, in that in that field in that code, um, and so a debt which went into default 15 years ago, um, the, the date that that clock is supposed to run 50, from 50, was 15 years ago. Well, what the debt collector, who is the furnisher in this case, does is they substitute a new date. They, they, get, they substitute the date that they receive the account, for example, sometimes. And that freshens up the, uh, freshens up the account um, illegally course. They're not supposed to do that. That is a violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Unfortunately, uh, it does happen a lot, and um, it's, uh, it, it, it's illegal. Um, and if you see that on your credit report, dispute, 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 and dispute with the Bureau. Dispute with the debt collector, because the debt collector is covered under a separate law called the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. And they'll be on the hook um, for violating that law, for sending incorrect information to the credit bureau. And and the other thing you could do is you can write to that debt collector and ask them for all documentation of that debt because um, it may be an error. If, if you never heard of them before and you don't even know who the actual original furnisher was, sometimes you'll get, you know, like ABC debt collector will call and say, you owe this debt, you know, pay $5 now and we'll we'll reduce it, you know, to from 20000 to 5000 or something. You know, I tell people, never pay that debt. Tell them, first, give me all documentation of this debt. I want to see what it is. Who's it from? When was the last, you know, when was it that I was supposed to have paid this? And um, that way, at least you know how to dispute it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of rights under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Law, Debt Collection Practices Law, including the one that you just mentioned, you know, there's also a right to tell, send a letter to the debt collector saying, you know, stop bothering me. And for the most part, 
they actually have to stop. It's, yes. it's a very powerful right, and we, we have some information on our website on, about um, your rights under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. And unfortunately, you know, the phenomenon you describe about debt collectors um, going after consumers for really old debt is becoming more and more frequent, and that's because of a phenomenon where the debt collectors are, are no longer you know, working for the creditor like they used to, but they're actually buying old debts. Right. They're called debt buyers, and they buy these old debts that are decades old for pennies on the dollar, and then they figure, well, we've bought this for pennies on the dollar, so what do we got, have to lose? We'll start sending out debt collection notices or even you know, suing on these old debts, even though they may pass the statute of limitations. It's a, it's a huge and growing problem. Right. It's very deceptive. I had a young college student just call me two weeks ago, And unfortunately, what he had already done was he said, well, you know, they told me that I had this old debt. I didn't even know what it was. I think it was AT&T. I don't know what it was. And they told me, you know, that they're going to ruin my credit and all this stuff. And they said, if I start paying them now and they'll reduce the debt and I can pay like $10 a month. I said, did you start paying? And he said, yes. (laughs) You know, Uh. because he, you know, they scare these people. And if you don't know that you don't have to do it, then you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught. Well, Amanda says we don't have a great deal of time. I told you it was going to go fast. But can you tell me in just a little bit of time, what actions should government agencies do right now to, to fix this crazy system? Well, the power to fix the system is in the hands of the federal regulators, like the Federal Trade Commission and the bank regulators who govern the furnishers and Congress. And um, they can require the credit bureaus to um, have real investigations, meaningful investigations. Um, They can require the credit bureaus to actually send your dispute to the furnisher. Um, There are some technical things they can do to prevent duplication or mixed files. I mean, just simply requiring that credit reports match nine out of nine digits in the Social Security number would really reduce that mixed file problem. So there's a lot the federal regulators can do, and there's a lot Congress can do. Congress could do any of that, and Congress can do one really important thing, um, which is to provide the right for the consumer to not only sue for money, which is some of what we've been talking about, but I'll actually force the credit bureaus to do the right thing, fix the reports, and fix their systems. Well, I hope that your report will be before Congress. I hope that the new administration is going to take heed and listen to all the wonderful things that and the research that you've done to show what's really going on. But let's see, Amanda says it's time for us to go. I want to thank you, Chi-Chi. You are wonderful. Thank you so much for all you do for policy, for consumers. And we will send all of our listeners to www.nclc.org. Thank you so much, Chi-Chi Wu. You are a fabulous attorney, and we thank you for all your great work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Thank you for joining us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. here on KUCI.org and 88.9 FM in Irvine. Please visit our website to see our future guests, download podcasts, download, listen to archived interviews at www.KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you. Good night. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And this week we are so thrilled because the Orange County Sheriff's Department referred us to a wonderful person to interview, and his name is Russell Brammer. He is the executive director of the Rays Foundation, and he's been working in the field of services to children and families for 30 years. Thank you so much for joining us, Russell. Well, thanks for having me. Well, Russell, why don't you tell my audience, what is the Rays Foundation? Well, each county in California is called upon to have a child abuse prevention council. The Rays Foundation is the official child abuse prevention council for Orange County, 
In fact, our name used to be the Orange County Child Abuse Prevention Council. What does the foundation do? Our mandate is to raise public awareness about child abuse and to support the efforts of other agencies and organizations involved in the prevention of child abuse and to provide services and programs to strengthen and support families. We host a meeting the second Thursday of each month called the Prevent Child Abuse Network, where agencies and individuals meet to discuss child abuse prevention efforts, seek ways to minimize duplication of services, while at the same time trying to identify gaps in services to families. Well, why don't you give us your website? It's www.theraisefoundation.org. Be sure and put the in front of Ray's Foundation, theraisefoundation.org. Well, thank you so much. We're going to have you back next week, and you're going to tell us more about what you do and what we'll find on your website. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you. 